0: All right, if you're listening to the podcast, just a reminder that we've got a link in the notes of the podcast where you can download a PDF of the handout for tonight's session. Um, so be sure to check that out and download that if you want to follow along with a handout. Um, and now let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's talk to our Father. Father God was just... Um, Chatting with someone downstairs uh, after eating, and just spending time in conversation, and and just reflecting, we were reflecting with each other on on how difficult it can be for us as finite humans to try and grasp who you are, uh, and we and we know, Father, it's actually good news that we'll never get to the end of that, uh, and yet it, it can be kind of frustrating at times and start thinking about some of these questions around your sovereignty and providence and um, our responsibility for our decisions and actions and the reality of evil in the world in the face of a good and holy and sovereign God. And we feel like maybe we need ibuprofen close at hand. Um, Father, would you send your spirit? to give us a a measure of understanding tonight and would you do that particularly for me that the words that I speak would be helpful to these brothers and sisters, uh, that they would be an encouragement, that we'd walk out of this place um, more firmly uh, with a firmer foundation under our feet as to who you are and the faith that we have. I ask it in Jesus name, Amen. All right. Just a reminder that uh, as we go along, uh, and we've been doing really good at this the last uh, few sessions, uh, you guys stopping me or asking a question or what? Please do that, um, especially in topics like these that get fairly deep. So um, we'll work we'll work hard tonight, I think. Um, but let's do a let's do a brief review of last week. Providence is. God's ongoing relationship with creation, we saw that in three ways. First, we looked at the doctrine of preservation. Well, actually, even before that, what we did was we looked at the Heidelberg Catechism uh, that defined God's providence as his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And so then we looked at three specific attributes about this providence that helped us see how God works and moves through his creation. First, we looked at the doctrine of preservation, which means that God keeps all created things existing, and maintaining the properties which he created them to have. He's in this way way of speaking preserving his creation. He's causing them to maintain the properties they have so he preserves water in such a way that it continues to act like water. Grass continues to act like grass and so on. Second, we looked at the doctrine of concurrence which is the aspect of divine providence that describes how God works in and through all things particularly the actions of God's creatures. In concurrence, we see divine agency and human agency running together or as it were running alongside each other in specific actions. That's something we're going to dig a little bit further in today as we deal with elements of divine and human interaction and the problem of evil in particular. Third and finally, we looked at the doctrine of government which is the doctrine that God governs the world and directs all things to their appointed purpose. In other words, the world and everything in it is not ruled by chance or by fate, but by God. So we don't yell, good luck, when you head off to that game or that event. We say things like, Godspeed, God be with you. So God sustains his creation, works in and through his creation, and ultimately directs that creation to his good ends. And where we kind of began last week and said we would come to this week is that if we understand God's providence to mean that he's preserving his creation and acting in and through it and governing all things toward a specific end that he has ordained, then there are a number of questions that quickly arise in the human mind, which is a good thing because God likes questions, (laughs) and he created your curiosity. Questions like, how exactly are we to understand divine sovereignty and human agency to work hand in hand? Or, if God is sovereign, then why are we held responsible for the evil things that we do? And why isn't God responsible? And, how can God be good and powerful and there still is evil in the world done by all of these creatures? To answer these questions, let's take a look at what the scripture makes clear to us concerning divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So as with so many things, I think when we're trying to build a theology, right, we want to make sure that it's on a foundation of the scriptures. And so what are some of the basic things that I think that we need to have in place? Like what are the presuppositions? What are the things that we know to be true um, before we start to answer those things that we may feel a little bit uncertain about? Right? So, we, for example, we, we always want to let the texts that are very clear interpret texts that maybe not are so clear to us. Um, so, that's what we want to do to start with. Scripture teaches three propositions that hold true simultaneously. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in such a way. That human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. God not only assigns times and places to people, but so reigns that even the most mundane natural processes are ascribed to his activity in the world. Remember, we read Psalm 104 last week, verse 14. Yahweh causes grass to grow for the livestock. That's how involved he is. He provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Further, the writer of Ecclesiastes is well aware of the water cycle but prefers explicitly to speak of God sending the rain rather than to say merely it's raining. Which, you know, I don't know, like, we all have these different experiences, right? And I think there's a way. There's a way to say, if someone says it's raining, there's a way that a Christian can go, well, no, you know, it's God sends the rain. God causes it to, there's a way to do that that just feels really pompous um, and, and not helpful, right? Or, or this kind of spirituality that isn't actually taking a deep and abiding joy in the remembrance of the reality that you're saying. You know, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think for too much of my adult life, I threw out, I've thrown out the the possibility of recognize those things, insert those things into conversations, one, for my own good to remind me, and for the good of those around me, but in a way that's really celebrating, that like is taking a deep joy and reminding myself that rain doesn't just happen. He's actually involved in causing it to rain, God is the one who opens and shuts, who kills and brings life, who raises up and puts down kings. Once again, establishing God's sovereignty over all of creation. But not only that, we see God's sovereignty over even the human will. Ezra 6.22. They observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with joy. With joy. Because Yahweh had made them Joyful. Hmm. Ezra, what? 622. I don't see that here. Having changed the Assyrian king's attitude toward... This is still Ezra. Having changed the Assyrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work on the house of the God of Israel. So Yahweh is not only making the people joyful... But part of how he made the people joyful was that he changed the attitude of an Assyrian king to allow them to create a temple so that they could worship in joy. So God's in control of the hearts of people joyful and God is in control of the hearts of kings of Assyria so that actions actually helped the Israelites in their work. The text seems clear. God's sovereignty operates over even the inclinations of the human will, directing emotions, choices, attitudes.
1: It isn't isn't Ezra's second temple? Uh, Ezra's second temple, isn't he? He's at, in the restoration after after the Babylonian captivity.
0: Um, I'm not remembering the historical timeline correctly.
1: If that's the case, or, it's the Persian king, not the Assyrian king.
0: Well, I'm just reading Ezra 6:22. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> unless I unless I typed it in incorrectly from reading it from the Bible. King of right the Ezra and Nehemiah are, are the return of exiles Persia, from exile. So yep. it's Persia.
2: During the reign of King
1: Xerxes Xerxes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you have a bone to pick with 622. <laughs> I'm merely the messenger. Yeah, but had one of them conquered the other or something? Yeah, I mean, it's a progression. Yeah. And yeah. in 7, chapter 7, it refers to, now after this, in the reign of our diversity, that version of yeah. yeah. the book. Thank you. I'm, when you ask me historical questions, I'm going to flounder. I'm sorry. I, I'm not as good on history as I should be. Thank um, Moreover, we see God's sovereignty over evil in the scriptures. Psalm 2 is a great example of this. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against Yahweh and his anointed one, saying, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. And the one enthroned in the heaven laughs. Yahweh ridicules them. Or consider Lamentations 3:37-38: to 38. Who is there who speaks? And it happens. Unless Yahweh has ordained it. Speaking, who is there who speaks and it happens unless Yahweh has ordained it? What's the what's the text now It's just coming to my mind? Before there is even before there was even a word on my tongue, you you knew it. That's a
1: song. Yeah. 139,
0: yeah. Do not, again, still Lamentations, do not both adversity or, or bad and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Don't bad and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Thus, Yahweh is always in sovereign control over all evil that exists, and this is clear throughout all the Scriptures. While we may see examples in Scripture of God ordaining evil in some way, like we just read in Lamentations 3, we must be careful to see that when God's sovereignty over evil is spoken of in the Scriptures, The authors never ascribe evil to God. They do make it clear that even evil cannot escape God's sway, however. Sin and rebellion exist, but no matter how difficult the questions that are thereby called into being are, the sweep of God's sovereignty is not curtailed or qualified. We're going to get to more on that later. We're just building the foundation right now. So God is absolutely sovereign but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. Therefore, number two, human beings are more morally responsible creatures. Significantly, they choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, and make decisions. And they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent on us. In other words, the tail doesn't wag the dog. We're not making decisions that somehow forces God into a corner or forces some truth or reality back on him because of the decisions that we made. It's always the other way around. The fact of our responsibility is clear in the biblical command, for example. Here's just an example, a way to try and come at this. Our responsibility is clear in the command to repent. If we weren't responsible for the things that we had done, repentance wouldn't be required. And so we read Acts 17, 30 to 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. Human beings are responsible for their actions before God, and it is God who ordains this responsibility. Look at Joshua 24, 14 to 15, therefore fear Yahweh and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worship before the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship Yahweh. But if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose for yourselves today. Which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worship before the Euphrates, beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? As for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. So Joshua's making this statement to the people of God after Moses, telling them, you've got a choice to make here. And as we read further in the biblical story, we see how God held the people of Israel responsible for their actions when they chose other gods. And they followed those decisions. And then God follows those decisions with judgment and punishment and exile. So they're Responsible for their actions, even though God is ordaining the entire situation and all of the activity and responsibility. Exodus 16.4. Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go, they're to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Okay, so you just, I'm just building this idea of responsibility. You, Exodus nineteen four to six. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and I I brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words, says to Moses. You are to say to the Israelites. Or Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 9, look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of all of the peoples. When they hear about all of these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God as near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call to him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like the entire law I set before you today? Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things that your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Isaiah 30 verse 18. Therefore, Yahweh is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion for Yahweh is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy. Ezekiel eighteen thirty to 32. Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of Yahweh God. Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts, so they will not become a sinful stumbling block to you. Throw off all the transgressions that you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of Yahweh God. So repent and live. To which Paul echoes, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is master and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. We have responsibility. It's clear from the beginning of the Old Testament into the New. We are responsible to make choices. God's sovereignty does not mitigate our choices, our obedience, our disobedience, and our responsibility for those actions oh I'm sorry Romans 10 8b through verse 11 good question number three along with what scripture affirms about God's sovereignty so that's the first thing that we saw went through a few scriptures and then human responsibility and we went through some scriptures to show that the third kind of brick we have to put in our little foundation here is that the Bible insists that God is perfectly good. God is never presented as an accomplice of evil or as secretly malicious or has standing behind evil in exactly the same way that he stands behind good. The goodness of God, it is clear, is non-negotiable in Scripture. 1 John 1.5 This is the message that we have heard and that we proclaim to you God is light, and in him there is absolutely no darkness at all. Mm -hmm. Psalm 92:5 Yahweh is just, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Psalm 145:9 Yahweh is good everyone his compassion rests on all that he has made revelation chapter 4 verse 8 each of the four living creatures had six wings they were covered with eyes around and inside day and night they never stop saying holy 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 is yahweh god the almighty who was who is and who is to come Isaiah chapter six, verses one through three. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and to another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of heaven's armies. His glory fills the whole earth. James 1.13 No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Now we saw earlier, he tests. He doesn't tempt. So those are the three bricks of our foundation. God is absolutely sovereign. We are still responsible. God is perfectly good and holy. So how do we put these three truths together in some way so that we can answer the three questions that we mentioned earlier? Number one, how are we to understand divine sovereignty and some level of, um, you know, words fail: human freedom, agency to work hand in hand. How, how do those responsibility? how do they work hand in hand? Two, if God is sovereign, then why are we held responsible for the evil things that we do? And why isn't God responsible? Because he's sovereign. Number three, how can God be good and powerful when there' still be evil in the world? One attempt to explain how these things might all hold at the same time is the philosophical idea of compatibilism. You've heard that a little bit already as we've worked our way through the biblical texts. It's there in the background, I think. D.A. Carson offers the following definition of compatibilism. It's there in your handout. The Bible as a whole, and sometimes in specific texts, presupposes or teaches that both of the following propositions are true. And and we could say are true at the same time. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibilities curtailed, minimized, or mitigated, and human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But that characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. These two propositions are taught in in Scripture and are mutually compatible. Although there are numerous passages of Scripture that address the issue, we're going to look at just three that show how God can be absolutely sovereign over all things and human beings are still completely responsible for their actions. So first we're going to take a look at the story of Joseph. We're going to see that in this story, he is sovereign over all things and that the human beings involved in the story are completely responsible. Now, we all know the story of Joseph? By a show of hands, right? We remember that Joseph, one of the sons of Israel, is betrayed by his other brothers. He's sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, and after serving in the house of Potiphar, he's unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife and is thrown into prison. Ultimately, he's delivered from prison by God and raised up to be the one through whom God rescues Israel and blesses the nations during a great famine. So I've put this text in your handout, Genesis 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here. To which, if you've read the story before, you go, But, but you did, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, ruler over all the land of Egypt. And jump down now to Genesis 50. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Because they were afraid, right? What he was going to do to them. If you remember the story, like... Because now he's got all this power and he's just going to kill us and... And then they start lying to him. It's just awful. Am I in the place of God, says Joseph? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result. The survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them, which is in itself a wonderful example. So this story puts the two aspects of Carson's definition on full display. It was the brothers who had done wrong, which they knew, right? They knew it was wrong. How do we know that they knew it was wrong?
2: They lied to cover their
0: tracks. Right, because they lied, because they were afraid of what was going to happen to them Because now they've been found out. Why would they be afraid if what they had done wasn't wrong? (laughs) Of course, they're afraid. And it was a wrong that they are responsible for. They had planned, they had planned evil for Joseph, and they deserved punishment for that evil. And at the same time that that proposition is true, it is also true that God was absolutely sovereign in the events of Joseph's life. He says it. God planned it, God did, to bring about his purpose and plan. Which, as we learned from the story, is that a smaller evil would happen to Joseph so that he might act in God's stead as a savior to Israel to avert the larger evil of his people being destroyed by famine and Egyptian rule. So we can at least, like we get to look back in the story and we can at least understand, at least a bit, of what God is doing at the end of the story and why he did what he did. We could we could question that he wrote the story that way, right? We could certainly do that, but we can at least understand the story. Any any questions there with Joseph?
2: Joseph is also much matured by the whole process. Yes, he I mean, is. as a 17-year-old kid, he's not exactly wise. wise. <laughs>
1: right,
0: right. I
2: mean, not that he deserves what he gets, but God certainly
0: oh yeah yeah Joseph Joseph could have done with reading a little bit of Romans twelve <laughs> three to 8 and not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think yes yeah. for sure but one sin doesn't beg another <laughs> as, which is your point
1: <laughs> I, I think we should see Joseph as a type of Christ yes. yeah. who is first Absol- humiliated and then exalted yeah. and, and for the benefit
0: of yeah. his people absolutely yeah that's good brother yeah Humiliation and exaltation. Yeah, that's beautiful. Eric.
3: It makes me think of the Garden of Eden. It makes me think of, like, man's fall. And you think about, you know, well, <clears throat> God is not evil, but He sent forth a way um, for Him to be known to His people while creation, His name's in creation and everything. So it makes me think about, like, the why, you know, the question of why did he allow the Satan, oh, Satan, whatever you want to say, <laughs> to do what he did. And my thought always leans into that he is able to see past all of that and see him from a position that he knows, just like, he knows how he's going to get maximum glory out of the situation. Does not mean that he created evil? Like, what he had... Brian asked a few weeks ago no I think that he created creatures that have the will to do um, what they wanted and because of that evil was created out of that that doesn't mean that um, God allowed Joseph that happened Joseph out of some spitefulness or something he knew that it was going to happen to Joseph because he's all seeing that his brothers were going to do this and he was able to take that and turn it to good is that what you're saying no okay good (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, in and how how I would how I would say that is because it's not what the text is saying. Okay. So Genesis fifty verse twenty, you planned evil against me. God planned it, not God reacted to it, right. not God. Um, because there's a there's a there's a theological concept called uh, open theism, mm-hmm. which is the idea that. Um, you know, would take texts like um, in Ephesians, uh, where where Paul talks about foreknowledge, right. uh, and, and we're going to get into this in a, in a little bit. So I'm I'm going to give a little bit, but I'm going to pause because I'm going to we're going to come around to um, answering a question, and we're going to get help from John Frame again, who's just kind of my favorite right now, uh, reading systematics. Um, we're going to answer a question: Does God author sin? Um, and so. Um, but open theism looks at foreknowledge and says, kind of the sentence that you just said, uh, that it's as if he's, he's looking down the timeline of history and because he knows all things that are going to happen, now he can, and, and actually open theists would say this actually, they would argue it redounds more to the glory of God because it exalts his power, his wisdom, his knowledge to be able because he's the only being who can possibly, it's almost like an, an algorithm in Facebook, right? Like, how can I work out all the permutations? Because I have this plan that I'm going to bring about. I'm looking down history, and I'm seeing the way all these creatures are acting, and I've still got to get my plan done. And so I have, to, I have to do, you know, whatever, four trillion adjustments to my plan as we're going along to make sure that the end result happens. Whereas I think he's actually ordaining every aspect of the timeline. The first option is basically making God contingent upon him. So it, it seems... Yeah, and I think an open theist would argue against that, that there would be some wiggle room in there, but I think that you're... Yeah. I would agree with you as not taking that position that, yeah. that it would. I could not agree with that.
1: Yeah. We so-called open theism, which I've never heard of
0: before. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was a... Uh, I happen to be at Bethlehem Baptist Church when uh, John Piper was a pastor there and Greg Boyd was the main proponent along with Charles Pinnock around the idea of open theism. And so I kind of was right in the middle of the the eye of the hurricane (laughs) of this storm that lasted, I don't know, probably a good 10 years. Um, But all right, let's move on to Joe. Um, We have the background that right off the bat, in the story of Job and in verse one, it it says that he's blameless and upright. And then when you work down to verse eight and we start getting into the story, we we see that Yahweh says to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity. Wow. Yeah. Who fears (laughs) God it
1: turns away
0: from me? We should all
1: desire yeah. to have God
0: say that about us. I, you know <laughs> it, like it just. I think
1: God's going to say, "Saved by the blood <laughs> of Christ." He's there it for the same
0: it of just, all. it, just but it, I mean, really, like when you, when you, if you believe the Bible is true, right. that's just a stunning, yeah. stunning yeah. statement yeah. Yeah. from the mouth of God yeah. of a human being. It's just absolutely stunning. The Satan a- answered Yahweh, "Well." Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out, in other words, he's got it easy. Of course he's a man of integrity. He's got no challenges in his life. Anybody could be a great guy if his life was easy. But stretch out your hand. Strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well. Very well. Yahweh told the satan. Notice, notice in this story too, just in case you haven't noticed it before, Yahweh is the one who brings this up. Yeah. Yahweh is the one who points out Job to the satan. Yeah. Have you noticed this guy that you're not getting to? Yeah. Very well, Yahweh told the satan. Everything he owns is in your power. Yeah, However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So, the Satan left Yahweh's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them and I alone have escaped to tell you. The messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you in a matter of seconds. He's lost everything. And Job stood up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground. And he worshipped. He worshipped. I got bad news yesterday morning. I didn't worship. I complained. I got good news this morning. I worshipped. What's wrong with that picture? I ask God's forgiveness for not worshiping yesterday morning. Because look at what Job says. Yeah. Naked I came from my mother. This is his worship. This is his worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. Now look at what he says. Yahweh gives. And Yahweh takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. And even when it gets bad in the midst of the story, right? When you go all the way to the end of the story, God repeats that phrase as the readers of this story because job doesn't know what has happened in the council of the elohim which that's a whole other conversation we could have a whole council of capital e elohim small e elohim i'm still trying to work that out as readers though we know the satan took job's property and the lives of his children Job ascribes the giving and the taking away of his property and the lives of his children to Yahweh, not to the Satan. The narrator of the book says that in Job's description of all of this to Yahweh that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. His view of God and his providential control over even the worst of tragedies produced in Job humble, heartbroken worship. Yahweh gives, Yahweh takes, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Questions?
3: I love this story so much because to me, what it really showed me is about a point in my walk how, like, uh, uh, God showed me it's okay to wrestle with Him and to, you know, question some things because He brought forth some knowledge in that um, and wisdom. And you know what I mean? And um, for, I've had people explain to me that Job was prideful and, you know, and, but the book says what it says. might not have anything else to lean on but to talk to God about what we're going through in that situation. Yeah. We might fall short with our questions, but he won't fall short with his answers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Psalms are a wonderful place to go to, aren't they, for that expression. We see the Psalmist express that all the time and 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 apparently I I, I don't know how else to interpret some of the things that at minimum job I, I said it this last Sunday he or was it the Sunday before um, he seems frustrated at minimum right he starts asking questions and he at, at minimum he gets close to a line yeah. because God also comes and again we don't have tone in the Bible right but when right. when you say when you say uh, gird up your loins there job yeah. buddy because yeah. uh, I got a couple <laughs> questions for you over sixty of them right. get ready. Like I'm I'm hearing tone like I, I'm you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing Gandalf with 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 Frodo with Frodo in the Who do you think you are dude? Or it's Bilbo. Right. It's Bilbo. Yeah. And the whole room gets dark and do not try <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um
0: But but God is unable to still say Job's not the one who's done wrong here. You're the ones who have spoken wrong of me. Um, So apparently, he skirted a line. Let's go to Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the righteous one, the one who never sinned, is arguably the most wicked and evil atrocity ever committed. Yet it happened by the hand of God and the plan of God. Acts two twenty two, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth, this Peter, was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was, which, <sighs> we could just, there's so much to, have you, have you thought about that before? He's a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did mm-hmm. through him. Mm-hmm. In other words, he's saying something about how Jesus accomplished mm-hmm. the things that he did, not on his own.
1: Right. He That's remarkable.
0: That's <laughs> remarkable. That he goes out into the wilderness, and after his time in the wilderness, I mean the spirit of the Lord descends upon him at his baptism. He's ministered to by angels and strengthened. And then he goes into the into the synagogue and opens a scroll and, and reads the passage about this, this one who's going to come, and the spirit of the Lord is upon him. So in this way, we're like Jesus. Jesus needed the Spirit of God to do the amazing things that he did. We need the Spirit of God. Which means we can do the amazing things that Jesus did. Okay, that was for free. Um, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So see, both are operating. God's determined plan is at work in the death of Jesus. And people are doing it. And because they're doing it, they're lawless. Mm -hmm. Acts 4.24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign King. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. We read that passage earlier, Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So people are doing things, making decisions, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was men, lawless people, verse 23, chapter 2, who sent Jesus to the cross, for which they are responsible, this travesty of justice. And at the same time, it was God who oversaw it, ordained it, predestined it, foreknew it, made sure that it happened. And so we see the idea of compatibilism worked out in Scripture in these three stories God sovereign over all things, sin, evil, the Satan, all of it, and human beings completely responsible for and acting out actions, decisions, sin. Though we may not fully understand how it works, we see the doctrine of compatibilism compatibilism throughout Scripture pointing us to the truth that while man retains some level of agency and moral responsibility, God retains his sovereignty overall, including moral actors on his stage. Questions?
3: Would you say that God chose Jesus despite being that he was from the very beginning? he knew he had to do? Uh, or was God just chose Jesus? Um, what would you say God's reason for choosing Jesus to be the sacrifice was? Was it because he knew that he would walk it out the obedience? <laughs> he knew that, that he was willing? He knew that he would do all those things?
0: I think that those... Deep I think everything after the because that you just said there, <laughs> yes, absolutely, that's true of Jesus. For right. sure, he knew that of the son. Um, why, you know, I, I think I would push your question back. Would that be the way to say it? Even, kind of further back, even one stage, um, because um, you know you're, you're kind of asking the question: Did he, did God do that because he knew these things about Jesus and how he would respond?
1: Yeah.
0: There's, I don't know why God overall did this. I have a couple of large theological statements Mm -hmm. that I believe. Um, So, like, I mean, I think God did all of this Mm -hmm. for his glory. And that that seems like, so, but that seems like, oh, right, okay. That's like whenever you ask a question, the answer is Jesus. It's like for his glory. (laughs) But... No, this is good. Just one second. Um, So it's, I I think, like, I, I have to push back and go, I'm not going to be able to answer the ultimate question why beyond right. kind of larger 30,000-foot level responses like that. Yeah. Like, why sin? Because I think it shows and is this backdrop to the beauty of his glory. The darkness allows me to see the beauty and the, 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 the brightness of his glory in a way that without sin I cannot see. I, I can't argue that it was still necessary. I can't argue that... He could have done all kinds of th- other things. Right. All I can rest in, me personally, is because he's God and because of what I know in the Bible about God, right. his wisdom is like all those things that we talked about and his attributes, I, the sentence that one of the sentences I have in my theologi- in theological structure is this is the best of all possible worlds because he's God. So I'm left with no other conclusion that it's the best of all possible worlds. Claude, do you have something you wanted to add or ask? The scripture bears
1: abundant with that Jesus had a pre-incarnate existence. Absolutely, as the, yes. As the son. And my understanding is he chose that as the son in his pre-incarnate existence. He chose all of that. In obedience
0: to the Father. Yeah, I would agree. I, I'm not, I'd have to ask ask you to flesh that out a little bit because I, I think you're right. I, I think you're speaking in to some level now. We had some bit of disagreement, I think, on some of the uh, potential hierarchy within the Trinity, as I recall. I think we had that conversation, you and I. Um, so, yes, I think always God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Um and I think, you know, when I think I think of Jesus in his incarnate form speaking to not my will, but your will. And I am going to submit to the will of the Father. And he's always describing this. And he's going, he wants to spend time with the Father, speaking to the Father in prayer and having ongoing communion now in his in- incarnate state. Um, so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There was always Father, Son, and Spirit. It, that is that what you... Essentially, are you saying a little bit more? The
1: point that I wanted to make is that in his pre-incarnate existence, he chose. He chose, was he chose what was to be the
0: Son, or chose to be incarnate. This
1: to be incarnate as Jesus and to suffer what he suffered.
3: Mm-hmm. He emptied himself and took upon himself the form yeah, of a servant. Yeah,
0: yeah. If by chose you mean he responded in obedience to the will of the Father. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we, saw, we saw we saw that in his incarnate existence but I believe that his pre-incarnate yeah, is. existence he also chose this this fate,
4: this fate.
0: yeah yeah oh yeah I, I would I think that I think one flows and follows from the other yeah I see what you're saying now yeah I would agree with that Claude yeah chill so,
4: if it's like, oh, this accident, happened. okay, I busted my finger, I land in the ER, and I meet my dear friend April, Mm -hmm. because she's taking care of me in the hospital, and God (laughs) has used that for so much good in my life, Mm -hmm. and our friendship, so I can see, like, random accident, God uses, like, God planned that one, I have no doubt, Mm -hmm. but, and and certainly in the case of Jesus, but um, when we talk about our, the bad choices that we make, I hear that, interactions with folks in the jail, they go to. Well, God made me do it because oh, yeah. they're, they're like using that line as well. If He's sovereign overall, then He made me make all these bad decisions. So how do we flesh that out in the nitty gritty?
0: I didn't pay her for this segue. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's move let's move to does God author sin? Uh-huh. Oh. So this is. Um, this is not in your handout at all. Okay. This is as of uh, this morning. <laughs> okay, ha- sorry, handouts are printed. Yeah, this is, just keeps happening. It might be a new, a new trend or pattern. So this is, um, so I, I've showed you before the big uh, systematic theology that could kill you uh, by John Frame. So this is, he has a series called, uh, it's currently at four volumes. I think I have all the volumes. It's four volumes on my shelf. It's called The Theology of Lordship. So this is his, um, uh, I think this is volume one, uh, The Doctrine of God. So this is chapter, a lot of what I'm giving you here is from chapter nine in The Doctrine of God. Um, and again, just, just remember, just as a plug, because you guys might look at books at, like this and go, never, ever, ever, ever am I going to buy a book that thick because I'll never read it. <laughs> I have not read the totality of either of these books. They're reference books. You could, you could. I know people who do, but they're reference books so that when you have a question, so, right? That's what we've learned systematic theology is. It's a categorization of all these things. They have indexes in the back. They have scripture indexes. So you can look up and see where he's talking about a given scripture. They have topical indexes in the con- And John Frame is really good because he gives like a general table of contents And then he gives what's called an analytical table of contents, which goes in more in depth so you can see, like, I I wanted to read about um, human responsibility and freedom. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see, do you deal with this particular aspect of it? You can look at an analytical table of contents and see, oh, on page 899 and 900, you deal directly with the thing that is giving me a headache right now. Mm -hmm. And then you can turn to it. So that's why, you know, eat ramen for a week, and then buy these books. All right. <laughs> God is sovereign over sin. Point first, first statement. God is sovereign over sin. God does harden hearts, and through his prophets, he predicts sinful human actions long in advance, indicating he is in control of human free decisions. Kind of. Maybe we put free. I, I want to put free in quotes. Now, theologians have found it difficult to formulate in general terms how God acts to bring about those sinful actions. Mm -hmm. So that's your question. Mm -hmm. Well, God brought about my sinful action. (laughs) Which, first response, Jill, that I would actually give to that is even if God brought about your sinful action does not absolve you of the moral responsibility and consequence of that action. Which then they will say, probably, but God made me do it. It's not my fault. It's his fault. He should be the one who's suffering the punishment for that, not me. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. <laughs> do we want to say that God is the cause of evil? Never. That language is certainly problematic, since we usually associate cause with blame. Okay, now, mm-hmm. you get if you have to get up right now and do like a couple jumping jacks, if you're tired, if the... the The pulled pork is getting, we're going to, this is going to be some heavy sledding. I'm just telling you right now. So stop me if you have a question, if there's a word or what, like you want to like. It seems that if God causes sin and evil, he must be to blame for it. Therefore, there's been much discussion among theologians as to what verb should best describe God's agency in regard to evil. Some initial possibilities. God authors, brings about, causes, controls. Creates, decrees, permits,
1: permits,
0: for or that's <laughs> oh, we're, we're gonna get there. For <laughs> ordains, ordains incites, includes within his plan, makes happen, ordains, permits, plans, predestines, predetermines, produces, stands behinds, wills. Many of these are extra scriptural terms, and none of them are perfectly easy to define in this context. Because every one of those, we have to define exactly what we mean. Because words mean things, right? Especially when you're... And remember, you're all theologians, right? Mm -hmm. You're all studiers of God, building a theological system. That's why you're here. We have to figure out what the terms mean. So theologians like us need to give some careful thought about which of these terms, if any of these terms, should be affirmed. And in what sense should they be affirmed? Because words are the theologians' tools. In a situation like this, none of the possibilities is fully adequate. There are various advantages and disadvantages among the different terms. So let us consider some of those that are most frequently discussed. Number one, does God author sin? The term authors is almost universally condemned in the theological literature. It is rarely defined, but it seems to mean both that God is the efficient cause of evil and that by causing evil, he actually does something wrong. That's because if you hear someone authoring something, right? That's what you would think. Yeah. He's the cause of it, and so he could be blamed for it. Mm-hmm. So the Westminster Confession says that God, quote, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Despite this denial in a major reform confession, Arminians regularly, okay, regularly. Excuse me. Charge that Reformed theology makes God the author of sin. They assume that if God brings about evil in any sense, he must therefore approve it and deserve the blame. In their view, nothing less than libertarian freedom will serve to absolve God from the charge of authoring sin. So somehow we must confess both that God has a role in bringing evil about and that in doing so, Right, Because remember all the scriptures. What did we see in the scripture? He's holy, he's blameless. And he's absolutely sovereign. So we have to figure out how can he have a role in bringing evil about and still be holy and blameless? Because God does bring sins about. But always for his... Right? Joseph, Job, Jesus. So in bringing but he always does it for his own good purposes. So in bringing sin to pass, he does not himself commit sin. If that argument is sound, even though we may not understand it, yeah. mm-hmm. then a doctrine of the sovereignty of God does not imply that God is the author of sin. Mm-hmm. Let's try another term, cause. God causes sin. Cause is another term which has led to much wrestling by theologians. Again, this is frame. Reformed writers have <clears throat> reformed writers have denied that God is the cause of sin. Calvin teaches, for example, quote, "For the proper and genuine cause of sin is not God's hidden counsel, but the evident will of man." Something this is you would go, Eric would say, "Amen." I agree with you. <laughs> Though in context, Calvin also states that Adam's fall was not quote not without God's knowledge and ordination. Okay, so here we're getting into these words. Here's some other examples from Calvin. See that you make not God the author of sin by charging his sacred decree with men's miscarriages, as if that were the cause or occasion of those things, which we are sure that it is not, nor can be, any more than the sun can be the cause of darkness. Do you understand what he's saying? Yes. Okay, he's, he's saying, don't charge God with the sin, even though he's bringing, just like, I wouldn't see darkness and go, sun? Right. Even though it could seem like that, right? Because like, when I read that, I thought, hmm, is there a respect in which I can say the sun is the cause of darkness because shadows? You could, but I think that would be the same confusion that Calvin is saying, don't confuse with God. Well, because it's the cause of the shadow isn't actually the sun; it's a consequence of the thing blocking the rays of the sun, right? right? So you just—that's—you got to think it out, Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> Stay with me. This is—we're gonna get.
3: I have no idea how crazy this is.
0: Just what I've been through. Okay. I. We're gonna we're gonna get to an illustration that. you
2: haven't used my verb that, yet. That you're gonna. <laughs> I've got a
0: verb. It is God. This is Calvin. It is God who created, preserves, actuates, directs all things. So we learned that last week. Thank you, John. We're in agreement. But it by no means follows from those premises that God is therefore the cause of sin. For sin is nothing but anomia, which is, so he's, just, he's using a Latin word that is the transliteration of a Greek word, namas, law. And when you put an alpha primitive in front of it, so awesome, like atheist, yeah. atheist. It it negates the term. Yeah. So a not believer in God. So he's saying it's illegal. Mm-hmm. God is therefore the cause. Of, uh, by no means follows from these premises that God is therefore the cause of sin. For sin is nothing but anomia. It's illegal. Want of conformity to divine law. It's a privation of rectitude or or of keeping that law. Consequently, being itself a thing purely negative, it can have no positive or efficient cause, but only a negative or deficient one, as several learned men have observed. Okay. I am going to go to because of time because I could do this for another hour. Just give me a second here because I'm going to Um, I'm going to go here. For us, the question arises as to whether God can be the efficient cause of sin without being to blame for it. Older theologians denied that God was the efficient cause of sin, in part because they identified cause with authorship. Okay, so we're wrestling with these terms. But if the connection between cause and blame in modern language is no stronger than the connection between ordination and blame, because that's the term that Calvin used, ordination, then it seems to me, this is frame, that it is not wrong to say that God causes evil and sin. It's not wrong to say that. Certainly, we should employ such language cautiously. However, in view of the long history... Oh, excuse me. Certainly, we should employ such language cautiously, however, in view of the long history of its rejection in the tradition. In other words, so many have rejected the idea that God causes sin, but we want to open the door. Is this a way that we could talk about sin and God's sovereignty? It is interesting that Calvin does use the word cause, referring to God's agency in bringing evil about. He distinguishes between God as the remote cause and human agency as the proximate cause. Remember when we talked about that last week? Remote and proximate cause? So the proximate cause is what I see kind of right in front of me, but there's something back here that caused it. So you might see see your son writing graffiti on the fence that you just painted white. And you say, what have you done? And your son says, Billy made me do it. He told me if I didn't put graffiti on the wall, he was going to beat me up. Billy was the secondary, or excuse me, Billy was the remote cause, right? So that's it's kind of a, a human analogy to see remote, proximate cause. Arguing God is not the author of sin, Calvin says. The proximate He says, the proximate cause is one thing, the remote cause another. Calvin points out that when wicked men steal Job's goods, okay, remember Job's story, Job recognizes that Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. May the name of Yahweh be praised. The thieves are the proximate cause of the evil. They're guilty. But Job doesn't question the motives of Yahweh, who is the remote cause of that evil. Calvin does not, however, believe that the proximate, ultimate distinction is sufficient to show us why God is guiltless. Listen to Calvin. I felt so good when John Calvin, like I have this much of a shelf with Calvin. He says, quote, But how it was ordained by the foreknowledge and decree of God what man's future was without God being implicated as an associate in the fault as the author and approver of the transgression is clearly a secret so much excelling the insight of the human mind that I am not ashamed to confess being ignorant. (laughs) Hallelujah! I'm not either. <laughs> and here it is that right. Here it is that the that the holiness texts, again, I think, are so important for us to remember, because that's what is so, right? There's the thing there's things that we don't understand, but I can understand human responsibility. I can understand moral agency, and I can understand the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God. So what we're just like, and man, I'm sweating up here trying to figure this out, yeah. right? Like we're, we're wrestling with trying, again, as I prayed at the very beginning, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. We, <laughs> these are ineffable How unsearchable, how inscrutable, um, who has known the mind of Yahweh? Calvin uses the proximate remote distinction merely to distinguish between the causality of God and that of creatures, and therefore to state that God is always righteous, and at the same time he does not believe the distinction ultimately solves the problem of evil. At least we can say the above discussion does indicate that Calvin is willing in some context to refer to God as a cause of sin and evil. He also describes God as the sole cause of the hardening and reprobation of the wicked. Quote, Therefore, if we cannot assign any reason for God's bestowing of mercy on his people, but just that it so pleases him, neither can we have any reason for his reprobating others but his will. When God is said to visit mercy or harden whom He will, men are reminded that they are not to seek for any cause beyond His will. Consider now the term permits. Okay, oh. we're not going to consider that. <laughs> what I will say here's what I'll say about permits. Um. It is right to use permission to apply to God's ordination of sin, but we should not assume, as some theologians do, that divine permission is anything less than sovereign ordination. What God permits or allows to happen, therefore, will happen. Mm -hmm. God could easily have prevented Satan's attack on Job if he had intended to. That he did not prevent the attack implies that he intended it to happen. He gave Satan what? The The Satan said, let me at him. And Yahweh said, go ahead, but don't touch his body. He was given permission. Permission then is a form of ordination, a form of, we could say, causation. I think this is why it's so hard for me to use terms when we use terms like allow or permit, because I feel like I'm trying to get get God off the hook. I'm kind of trying to give him an out. Like, you know, well, he permitted certain things. Which is silly, right? Because if I permit, it's like, it's like me standing at the side of the road when Colton was two in our front yard, teaching him that you don't run out into the street. You gotta look both ways. And if a car is barreling down, comes barreling down our street, and then I stand there, and I permit him the opportunity to make his own choice, not being fully trained to know what he's doing, and he runs out into the street and gets hit by the car, with me not saying, stop, no, running to get him, wouldn't any reasonable parent in the world say that I was responsible for my son getting hit by a car? I would just say, well, but I permitted him his own choice. It doesn't get me off the hook. It actually meant that it would happen, whatever horrible thing could have happened. Um all right, here's where we're going to end. Um, you guys are so patient, and thanks for hanging in there. Um, we should say something more about the nature of God's agency in regard to evil. Um, God's relationship to free agents is like the relationship of an author to his characters. Let us consider what, to what extent God's relationship to human sin is like that of Shakespeare to Macbeth, the murderer, of duncan so question did shakespeare kill duncan okay this is john frame (laughs) i borrowed the shakespeare macbeth illustration from wayne grudem's excellent systematic theology but i disagree with wayne on one point he says that we could say that either macbeth or shakespeare killed king duncan I agree of course that both Macbeth and Shakespeare are responsible at different levels of reality for the death of Duncan. But as I analyze the language we typically use in such contexts, it seems clear to me that we would not normally say that Shakespeare killed Duncan. Shakespeare wrote the murder into his play, but the murder took place in the world of the play, not the world of the author. Macbeth did it, not Shakespeare. We sense the rightness of the poetic justice brought against Macbeth for his crime, but we would certainly consider it very unjust if Shakespeare were hauled into court and put on trial and killed for the death of killing Duncan. Right, That's that'd be crazy. Really
2: happened in historical time. <laughs> just a that second. Macbeth kills Duncan. Just, just a second. By history.
0: And no one suggests that there is any problem in reconciling Shakespeare's benevolence with his omnipotence over the world of the drama. Indeed, there is reason for us. I just swiped this page like it was an iPad. (laughs) I just went like this. There is reason. I didn't even have time to get it on my iPad. There, oh my gosh. There is reason for us to praise Shakespeare for raising up his character, Macbeth, to show us the consequence of sin. Now, likewise, God brings about sin without himself sinning. The difference between levels, then, may have moral significance as well as metaphysical. It may illumine why the biblical writers, who do not hesitate to say that God brings about sin and evil, are not tempted to accuse him of wrongdoing. The relation between God and ourselves, of course, is different in some respects from that between an author and his characters. Most significantly, we are real, Macbeth is not. However, and I think this is so important, I think what the Shakespeare, Macbeth, and Duncan illustration help us with is at a different level of reality, we see God as author, God as the omnipotent one who is creating a very real world of characters. And are we open? What this illustration did for me is that it opened my mind to the possibility. Am I open to the the idea that that this is a certain level of reality? And there's an entirely different level of reality that God operates in. And am I open to the idea that there's a certain kind of moral reality that I understand that operates in this world that he has created, and there may be a different kind of even moral reality that operates, where God operates, that isn't a, I get to do an end around or I'm breaking things that I've put into place, but that there's this vast difference in that reality, in my reality, that God is the absolute controller and authority, the most present fact of nature in history. He is the lawgiver. We are law receivers. He's the head of the covenant. We are the servants. He has devised the creation for his own glory. We seek his glory rather than our own. He makes us as a potter makes pots for his own purposes. Do these differences not put God in a different moral category as well? The very transcendence of God plays a significant role in biblical responses to the problem of evil. Because God is who he is, the covenant Lord, he is not required to defend himself against charges of injustice. He is the judge, not we. Very often in scripture when something happens that calls God's goodness into question, God pointedly refrains from explaining indeed he often rebukes those human beings who question him Job demanded an interview with God so that he could ask God the reasons for his suffering but when he met God he asked him questions like brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me the questions mostly reveal Job's ignorance about God's creation if Job doesn't understand the ways of the animals how can he presume to call God into question? He doesn't even understand earthly things. How can he presume to debate the heavenly realm? God is not subject to ignorant evaluations of his creatures. So therefore, in saying that God is related to the world as an author to his story, I think, I think, I think, right now, my current understanding of this question is that it actually provides a way of seeing that God is not to be blamed for the sin of his creatures. And it's a way in which we could say that he authors it, but is not the source of it. Because in him there is no darkness at all. So mainly with Frame's help, that's my current understanding of trying to get at the question of does God author sin? Mm. Yeah, phew. Someone said phew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Questions. And so ultimately the person in jail is really having they have their moral responsibility for their own actions. I mean that's the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: And yet if they want to see it, God is at work in
0: that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I think this is where we, we could spend another 30 minutes on, on, on human, I think kind of human responsibility inside the concept of agency or freedom, Jill. Mm-hmm. And so I think because there could be, we could work through all kinds of arguments of, um, you think about in a law court if someone says, I didn't know it was illegal to go 80 in the 50. What's the judge always gonna say? Ignorance your, is no excuse. your ignorance is not excuse to the law. Not even moral inability. So what, what is that really? What's underneath that statement? Underneath America. that statement would be a, a far more fundamental statement that we could make that my moral inability doesn't make it right for you to judge me for the consequences of that moral inability to which we say, actually, yes, it does you're still responsible. And, and, and can you, can, can we chafe against that? Of, of course, of course we can. Um, can we be frustrated, annoyed? Um, is it difficult to understand? I, and I think that's in part of answering when people have sat in my study. You know, I think the, I think the more heartbreaking ones actually are, why, was, why, why did my child get killed? why was my baby stillborn? Where is God? Um, Ultimately, there's things that we can understand at a certain level and ultimately we have to go to, I think we have to go to those higher theological levels and rest. And it's actually in his sovereignty that I can rest and have hope in those things and that there is some good in this because I trust that he's holy and righteous and good and, um, and that, in those kind of hard things. And that, yeah, for the person in jail, yeah, he's sovereign and you're still responsible. Mm-hmm. But the hope is, like, I can tell you how to have access to power that causes you not to make the bad decisions anymore so you don't land in jail. Like, that's the beauty of the goodness of God is that he also made a way for this consequence to be paid for. Because this consequence is just the human consequence of your action. There's an eternal consequence that's coming. And I would love to talk to you about that. And here's this loving God who makes a way for that verdict to not come down on your head. Are you willing to see that there's an even greater judgment? Oh, my goodness. Far more terrifying and terrible than the one that you're talking about right now. Another question. Yes.
2: You know, this has all just been like for me because... When my son died year before last, um, I was just like, Did God take him? Did the enemy take him? Because you know, you you read the enemy comes to kill, steal and steal and destroy. Yeah. Yeah. Yahweh takes, you know, you know, gives he takes away. And I was mad at God. I was really mad at God. I mean, why? Why cause such pain? Why leave his two children without a father? So like when Jill said, like when we get down to the nitty gritty of things, you know, it's like it's great on paper, but when our human hearts break, mm-hmm. my first, and you know, inclination was not to praise God for yeah. taking me. Right. So it's like, how do we, you know, how do we navigate those times when our heart is just shattered mm-hmm. and, yeah. and we mm-hmm. don't feel like praising God and thanking Him for that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um. Because it's left a whole trail of heartbreak. That's five, you know. He's like, my dad is dead, you know, and it's like, why? You know, yeah.
3: I just
0: don't get it. So I think a, a beginning, because those are weighty things that you're yeah. that you're bringing up. Um, so some of the thoughts that that come to mind is um, Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. So that's mm-hmm. the first, like when there's a trail of broken hearts, what do I do? I, I turn to this God who is going to heal those things. Like I can trust in his healing of those things. It doesn't fully answer the question necessarily why he did that. And those are things that are hidden in the purposes of God ultimately, sister. I can't, I know that, I have, I have illustrations that just kind of help me struggle at this, at the kind of in the midst of it level, like, we see the dark spots on the on the mural, right? And it's in the dark spots that we, when we step back, we see the beauty of the overall picture. Like those are just little explanations to tra- God is weaving this entire story that I don't that I don't fully understand, but that He's on about um, about weaving. Um, I had another text in my head, and it, I just lost it um, because of one of the things that you. Oh, oh, it's um, one of my favorite uh, texts or statements by David, and it's a couple of of his psalms um, in in relationship to, like, I just want to cry out to God. I'm angry with God. Um, And I love, I love, love, love that David says, you know our frames. You remember that we are dust. You are the ones who knit us together in our mother's wombs. And I think what David is saying there, because it's in the midst of complaint and lament, right? It's not in the midst of accusation. That That's another thing that we have to wrestle with. But this lament of God, how could you do this? Why are you doing this? And I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I would not choose this. I would not do it this way. David, David says, I'm so glad that right now as I erp all of this out on you, you're not coming back at me like, who do you think you are? Right. You're coming back and you know. You're not surprised because I'm frail. I'm just made from dust. You know my frame. It doesn't shock you that I have all of these questions and, I, and all of this confusion. Like, that doesn't shock you or surprise you or make you upset. But, right, it's it's the heart attitude in how we're coming to God that I think we do. And we have to plead with him to help us in that. Right, because that's what we see with, like, when you think about the differences between Zechariah and Mary's response to the angel. They were almost exactly the same, in, in questioning. Right, like, what is going on? Like, I don't, that's not going to happen. And what do you mean I'm going to have this? Faith? They're kind of both, the, but Gabe, right? Zechariah loses his voice, and and um, and it seems his hearing because they both he and the people are writing on the on the tablet. And Mary, <laughs> she gets songs written about her. Like, um, why? Because she was asking it out of this, I don't understand this, but I know you're God. I I'm I'm scared, but I know you're God. We're 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 gonna he's gonna be a bastard child, but I know you're God. We're gonna be accused of sleeping together before we've consummated a full marriage, but I know you're God. Like she just trusting and asking. So just, those are just a few immediate, but, it, but it's, boy, we just, he's patient with us. He's long-suffering, um, and he's good. and Like, those are all of the bedrocks. But I'm not saying, sister, like, it doesn't, listen, we're human, and we, we're going to struggle, and we're going to wrestle, and it's hard. We know like big pieces, right? Like that's that's the hard part too. It's like, I know where it's going. So that's awesome. And, and there's pieces that you know that I think, here's the other, Oh, here's another text. When Peter says, and then we should end at 7.30. Um, when Peter says, uh, he says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And I am, I've taken, it took me a lot of years to figure out, wait a second. He's recognizing we grieve. He doesn't say, don't grieve because we have hope. Why are you grieving? Right? Right. How horrible, how uncompassionate, discompassionate, whatever the word is, would that be? Right? He says, no. Of course we grieve. They've died. They've gone. We're asking why. Am I going to see them again? Of course we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The saddest funerals I've done is, I've done a few that most of the people aren't unbelievers, and I'm pretty sure the person wasn't. Yes, thank you. All right. Um, let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for good friends to um, who ask uh, good questions and have good comments, and uh, for just being present with us here as we, we wrestle just, you know... <laughs> with the unscrutable, impossible task of, of just trying to get a little bit more uh, of an understanding of the greatness of who you are. Thank you for being God. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for opening our minds uh, to your word and, and to new understandings. Uh, continue to bless us. Go with my brothers and sisters now as they head off into the evening. In Jesus' name, amen.